0: You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care.
0: Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stu Goldsmith, and this is an absolute joy. This is a podcast I recorded in summer of last year with Jake Johansson, a fantastic American comic, someone who's performed in the comedy industry for over three decades and has had 45 appearances on Letterman, probably more. Um, I was 45 when we spoke, I think, or maybe even 46, I'm not sure. But uh, nonetheless, he knows his onions in a way that few people know their onions. Uh, We're going to talk about some of the decisions he's made in his career and the effect they've had. He's going to talk about why planning as a comedian is effectively pointless. And we're going to get really stuck into some uh, very interesting ideas about writing and his craft and his technique and all of that stuff as well. If you are in the Insiders Club, you can also enjoy some extra material with Jake talking about how and why he turned down a major role on the sitcom Seinfeld and some other stuff besides. So uh, go to uh, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to access that on the private podcast as usual. I'll chat to you a bit more in the middle of the show, but for now, this is the wonderful, very warm and very funny Jake Johansson. I sat on my method of public transport this morning watching some videos of yours that span an incredible period of time.
1: Oh, yeah, well... You can
0: watch your shoulder pads grow in, like, at and then in.
1: Some of that was my choice, but I feel like a lot of it was not my choice, shoulder pad-wise. I mean, that's just a thing that happens to you in the world. You don't realize it's happening. You don't feel like a, a fashion victim. You, person listening right now, you don't think you're a fashion vis- victim. You don't think you're... In the moment, you think you're making choices of your own free will, but you're not. <laughs> you're choosing from the options available based on your personal preference. Yes. But sometimes the options are so extreme. Like there was there was a time in the 80s where the shoulder pad choices that you could make were there were some ridiculous like spaceship kind of spacesuit options. Like you're, I'm, I'm the commander of this rocket and I made that choice. But in a dressy sort of a way. Yeah. Yeah, and you don't feel old until you go on the internet and look at the things that you did in the 80s. In the you 80s. were a comic
0: in the 80s I like was, back in yeah. the day kind of what we think of, I suppose, as the birth, the first big boom of stand-up comedy. You're there with a not a wacky tie, but a kind of a, you know, it's it's pretty It loud. was it,
1: it, to be, you know, fair to me, it was not it was idiosyncratic at the time. Mm-hmm. Of but, course. But it wasn't but it wasn't wacky. I was wearing ties that were from it was the 80s, and I was wearing ties from the 40s. Yeah, okay, so got it. And so that was kind of fashionable, right? So where are we now? We're at the 2018. So if you go back – actually, you're almost you can go back to the 80s. If you were wearing ties from the 80s, like that piano tie, there's the tie, the necktie yeah, that was the yeah. keys of the piano. That is – we're probably about five years away from that being sure. a thing again sure. that people wear and to remind them of that time and pushing the – sleeves of your sport coat up to the elbows yeah. i never did that i yeah. never did that but okay. i thought about it yeah <laughs> like it was, that was on the menu of, of things that you could do right before the show maybe i'll just push my maybe i'll just put these up a little bit sleeves up like i'm gonna wash the dishes in my suit but i never did that i always took my jacket off to wash the dishes
0: when you are i mean do you look back at any of those things do you see because you can chart and and i should for the for the sake of people listening who are maybe less familiar with you you come to us as you is it 45 letterman appearances
1: 46 yeah, 46 there's some you, the internet can confuse you that way but my count is 46 and is I'm that the sure record that's accurate. are you the most it's guesses? the record for yeah, <laughs> you know what is that asterisk uh, it's the record <laughs> f- record for the most appearances doing stand up so gotcha. i went on and and did stand up every time sometimes i sat down and talked to him as well but uh, you know there's other people like I, I'm pretty sure Jerry Seinfeld and, and obviously Richard Lewis have gone on and just talked to Dave and not done stand-up. And they've been on more times than me and probably other guests like Tony Randall or whoever had been on more times. But, okay. but to go on and just do stand-up, it is I have the record for that. That's and, my...
0: And that is like, it's a bit like one of those ice core samples of your comedy. Do you know what I mean? Like you get this kind of,
1: yes like a cylinder yes. that you
0: go, look at all the levels of... Not just the shoulder pads, the the style, the references, material about phones and pages and material about, you know, turning into material about websites. It's like a sample of culture.
1: Well, the funny thing is, as a comic, you know, you're always trying to talk about things that are interesting to you at the time. And I feel like I personally have been early on a lot of things to talk about those things. But then when you go back and look at the ice core, you can't really tell... It, it's like, well, of course, everybody talks, talked about Starbucks, but you know, I think I did that early. I think I was one of the guys who talked about the Starbucks and the way you order and stand in line and the feelings you have in there. Yes. And then other people maybe saw it and said, oh, no, well, I could talk about that now too. Sure. So, uh, I, but you know, that's, that's the bragging thing. That's when you well, sound like you're bragging a little bit, but so I'll go back and look at all the, I won't go back and look at them all. It's not like I sit in my room <laughs> and cry and look at my old sets. But sometimes you're going online to find something to send someone a link to do something, and you sure. wind up go down the rabbit hole of your pasts. And uh, I remember when I first started comedy in the—I started in 1982—and I remember being a big Woody Allen fan when I was a kid and trying to find Woody Allen's stand-up because I, I had seen, you know, those early movies, Sleeper and Bananas, mm-hmm. and stuff. And and then I was starting to do comedy and interested in what was his stand-up-like and listening to it and thinking, oh, back then in the 60s, you could go a long time before you had to get a laugh in your story. Like when you listen to some of his, some of his classic mm-hmm. bits, you know, the, it's, it's really a long sort of story with some little kind of fairly and interesting... And some
0: humor. Some humor in it, in it. And then when he finally
1: line. gets to the big punchline, the mm-hmm. finality of the story, you're like, oh, we, we really went on a long trip to get that. And, uh, now when I watch my own standup <laughs> from the eighties, sometimes I feel the same, you know, the, the way audiences and comics are relating to each other, because I, I think it's a relationship. It, it's like in music, you're watching a guy play an instrument, but in comedy, you're watching a comedian play an audience they're, they're interacting. And so even when you're watching on TV, you think you're watching a comic do his show, but really you're watching the audience, watch the comic. And you're trying to pretend that you're part of that audience, but you're not. It's that audience and that comic at that moment. And so when I go back and watch some of those old Letterman's, I feel like what I was doing was kind of state of the art sounds braggy, but it was of the moment. It was that's that's I was one of the cool guys doing what I was doing. That's why I was on Letterman at the time. But now when you go back and look at it, it's like, oh, isn't that cute?
0: Him, yeah. Okay. Him
1: telling those that those kind of stories that way, and oh, that's the big punchline of that. Except it's me. It's not Woody Allen. It's not some <laughs> other old guy. Oh, and it's, it's actually, exactly the it's same experience. It's actually me watching myself thinking, oh, isn't that cute? The way oh he we kind of went round the houses together. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. So what set you apart then at the time in in that context of let's say kind of eighties? Um, what when you say you were that the reason that you got on Letterman so mm. often? Was it that you were, was it being that kind of vanguard of like, this is how we're going to do stand-up now by noticing things that are very much happening of the time? Um, Was it that you're, because you have a very, like your persona was very distinct, Mm. you know that kind of, your delivery was very distinct, that sort of staccato kind of hesitant, turning the idea over
1: as you speak. I, I think that was organic to me. I mean, I was trying to be, I was trying to be the way I am conversationally, trying to work things out and get the audience on board. And luckily, they they thought that was kind of a funny way to be. But it it was of a time where there were even way more extreme idiosyncratic examples of the way people were relating to audiences. Bobcat Goldthwait was, you know, he blew up kind of just before I came on the scene and um, Emo Phillips was big at the time. And those are, those are, you know, when you watch what they were doing with their, with their voices and the way they were dressed and presenting themselves, I mean, it was almost like a cartoon caricature of, of a person. So yeah, I, I think I was in that family of that moment. And I think Dave kind of related to what I was doing. I was a generation or two, you know, after when he started and so i, I think i at, at the beginning it was like oh i like this guy he seems people like him and he seems cool and i support what he's doing so then then i i, I think my relationship with him was always, with david letterman was always like he felt to me he felt as if he was helping a guy who w- had come after him that he liked to be successful, mm-hmm. you know, as you do, right. I mean, you, you, if you're ever doing a show, you're looking for somebody to come on and open or be in the show with you. You want to pick guys who are who, Hey, I just found this guy. He's really great. He doesn't have as much success as I've got. And he's going to come after me and be successful like that. You know? So I, that's, and it. I just, uh, I'm like, I'm like the kid who never left home, you know, your 38 year old son who lives in the basement. I just kept going on Letterman. And then, and then now at this point in my career, that's my thing. That's what I've got the record for It's 46 Letterman appearances. I mean, I did have a few TV pilots and whatnot, um, but I didn't have that blow. I didn't have that Drew Carey moment you yes. know, where one minute he's on the Tonight Show and six months later, he's got his own hit TV show. I didn't have that.
0: And do you think you could have had that? Do you think you could have manufactured that by kind of... I I was
1: in the Disneyland metaphor line. I was in the line with the ride with the ticket. I mean, I did several pilots where it was going to be my show about me and my situation, but uh, they didn't... You know, the show has to be good, so sometimes the show was not good, and the politics at the network the executives and everybody have to be they have to like the show and be in a position to push it across the goal line and between those two things and probably a couple of other variables they just all the thing you have to be a little bit lucky all the things never aligned at the same time so i don't know it's interesting now i feel like i've still got a lot of career and good times left. This thing that I'm doing now, the reason that we're seeing each other in London is great. Um, but it, but it's, I definitely at a point in my career where I can now say that that's what I did. I did that. And a lot of it doesn't feel like, obviously it is deliberate. It's all based on choices that I had and then things that were beyond my control that happened and then subsequent choices that i made. So everything that's happened to me has been you know, I take responsibility for it, but it's quite different from what I thought, because I thought I was I was on a track and I thought and my manager thought and the dream was, oh, you're going to become like Seinfeld or Ray Romano or Drew Carey. But instead, I toured I, I toured comedy clubs and did that I made friends and I have the respect to my peers and, all, you know, I don't Now nah, that sounds like I'm rationalizing, but it's been a great it's been a great ride so far.
0: I there's something I have often I don't know if I I apologize to the listener if they've heard me say this on the show before but I think I I've been doing comedy for 13 years. Before mm-hmm. that I was a street performer for about 10 years. So I've been pe- making people laugh for a living for, yeah. for, for quite quite a long time not not as long as yourself. But um I think as a comic that I reached a point where I was I was always looking forwards and going what will I be? Who will I be? What will I do? And then I sort of had this weird epiphany where I went actually the comic I am and the the relative success that I have is it's I realized I could look back at the choices that i would made and go rather than going who am I I can just go well I've done enough of it now I can actually look back and go oh I'm this guy because I decided to not do a particular gig because I wanted to go to my nephew's birthday or I decided to you know I made decisions along the way like I could have pushed harder for that but it, it just seemed to me like everyone that was trying that I didn't want to want to be like
1: one of those people. I think that's exactly right. I mean, that's what I I do to anybody who wants advice. And now I've got a kid. I mean, I, I would say you are your choices. You you create yourself every day by the choices that you make, whether it's simple things like, do I tell the truth or a white lie about this or the exact example you chose? Do I do I do I take this gig or go to this family event and birthday and all of those things? May seem like nothing, but they define you. You're the kind of person who does this, and they take you to the place that you wind up. And I think in show business, probably other careers too, but I, I can only speak for the thing that I've done. You, you can wind up you can wind up getting lost a little bit in what other people think that you're doing. You know, other people can look at your career and go, "Oh, that that's that's too bad that you didn't get to be." You know, Drew Carey or Jerry Seinfeld or Ray Romano, but from my point of view, I, I, I don't know what it'd be like to be them. But I, I spent a lot of time learning how to surf and you know meeting my wife and taking vacations with her and spending a day going to the movies and riding my bike to the comedy comic, comic book store or whatever I was doing that that uh, those guys didn't get to do. I mean, I had a lot of slack good times and fun and the choices that 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 guys have had that kind of success you know you read that book the late late i think it's a late shift about jay leno when jay leno got the tonight show over letterman i've
0: heard of it yeah
1: the stuff that jay did to get that show i mean he wanted it and he paid the price he did the hard work and he stayed up late and when it when it came time to going to the executives and and proving to them that he wanted it he did what it took, and I realize about myself. This, I, I, I just don't think I would. I don't think I could do that. You know, I, I don't think. I mean, the bottom line is, I, I, I wouldn't want it that much. I'd, ra- I'd rather feel like, look, if you don't want to give me this, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna. Get on my knees, or, or prove, or you know, my perspective. I don't want to make it seem like I think he did something wrong but i think sometimes the ambition and the drive that some of these really successful people have that's their thing and my ambition and drive is 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 on a more personal level to connect to 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 smaller individuals like you like in your example of the family might to to have my wife and daughter come on this trip with me and for us to have this time in london yeah i'm on, I'm, on, I'm on tour with russell peters but at the same time my wife and daughter and I went to see this London theater mm-hmm. show last night it was it was great, and my whole career has been based on that kind of choice of like i 'm going to do this, and at the same time i 'm going to do that you know it's been good
0: your your comic perspective, your persona as a comic you mentioned before the um uh, the almost like a uh, like emo Phillips and Bobcat had that kind of um Like they were, they were kind of a comic book version of a, you know, a cartoon version of a, of, of a person. And I'm interested in some, I I read a review of yours or some sort of, uh, quote about yours, which was that you had, it was a bit like watching the far side.
1: Remember the far side comic strips? And when that guy wrote that, the far side was on, it was a thing. I remember how huge
0: it was. It was everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) Let's
1: not forget the ice core sample of my career and right next to me (laughs) in that ice core was Gary Larson doing that. Um, But yeah, I, he said that and I think I had, I've had some weird observation stuff in my act and I still do That's Some of my favorite things to put in, but uh, as, as you do, you also want to kind of mix in some real, well, I guess those are real things. The, the, the observation that, uh, you know, currently that, that machine, you know, artificial intelligence is going to take over and what kind of kooky, conspiracy, paranoid yarn, you could spin out of that. And then also, you know, my problems with my wife and daughter and us relating to each other as a family, all that goes in to the show at the same time. But I think I was a little bit more... <laughs> I think if you'd imagine that Bobcat Goldthwait and uh, Emo, if, if you if you pretend, oh, the way that you see them on stage, that's the real person you would they would they would be a hard person to spend an evening with whereas I would just be a slightly difficult weird friend <laughs> that you had yeah that you might like in small doses
0: okay because I, I noticed when I, I was watching um this will take about an hour uh, yeah, which was where, was that end of the eighties, eighty
1: nine? Yeah, well, ninety two. Ninety two. Okay. So I think ninety two. Yeah,
0: and that and there is uh, there is some really heartwarming comments underneath it on the video. Someone's put the whole video up online. And, yes, um, you can
1: watch it on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Dirty pirates. Yeah,
0: yeah. But I mean, it's even the quality. It looks like it's been. Like the video has been shot of a TV in the 90s playing it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: that's the weird thing, isn't it? About that old, uh, somehow the, somehow it deteriorates because I had recordings of it that, that have kind of degraded right, over right. time too. Okay. The VHS tape, it gets, I yeah. mean, twinkles of... And also, all, It's also, entropy, man. Yeah. You can't fight it.
0: Also, our idea of what quality means has changed now mm. that we've got HD. Anyway, the point is there's some brilliant comments underneath it that people are like, oh, man, this changed my life when it came out. I loved it. Oh, thanks for uploading this. I was tra- I've been trying to track this down, all the rest of it, you know. In, in, in you got to watch
1: out with YouTube comments, though. So. Yeah, I mean, don't read them. right next to that is <laughs> this asshole should quit and yeah. let... <laughs>
0: yeah. But in that, there is a particular... In the, in the first 10 or 15 minutes of it, there's... This, the thing about the phone guy, so yeah. I'm taking you right, along. this is a long yep. way back now. Um, but something I loved about it was not just the kind of the the slight off-the-wall, um, you know, the thing about the phone guys are able to collapse their skeletons and, you know, mm. climb in through your
1: house. To come you, up through the plumbing. To come yeah. up through
0: the plumbing, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I want to talk about the the difference in your persona as time has gone on because now your your act is seems to be more grounded more kind of relevant to not not that you were less relevant but it's kind of more accessible to a sort of an everyday experience it seemed to me looking at you know Hmm. clips over the years that initially there was a bit more of a kind of I'm a weirdo (laughs)
1: there was a bit more of I'm a weirdo. Yeah, I think so. You know, and, the, and someone had said to me that they missed the I'm a weirdo thing. And so I really tried to take a look at my set list and and then, you know, highlight what out of the hour long sets, you know, where is, ha, I think it's always there's always some I'm a weirdo and some this is what's happening to me that you might also. I mean, I am still a weirdo, but but here's something that I has happening to me that may also be happening to you. Aside from this other weird thing that I think that you don't think. Um, And so I always feel like there's a percentage. Looking back then, I, I do understand what you're saying. And I think for a period, maybe in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot more, I'm telling you about my regular experience and less I'm a weirdo. And since someone had said that to me, like they missed the I'm a weirdo thing, I was like, yeah, me too, kind of. When I went back and watched that some of that stuff, and even though I get what you mean by "I'm a weirdo," I I do I like that kind of paranoia and that the phone guy. How else can they get into your house if they can't collapse their skeletons like rats? They that's the thing about rats, you know, they can get through a. If they can get their nose in, they can, in, they the can in. Yeah. because they're they can collapse their skeletons. So that's why the phone guy it's that's just a logical to me it wasn't such an i'm a weirdo thing it was like i'm just going to mix these mix sure. these two ice ideas together to make it possible for for not just magic to happen but this real a real biological way that this guy could be getting sure, into okay. your house and so um so I, I feel like i still have some i'm a weirdo stuff in my show it's interesting because on this particular tour where i'm doing all these gigs in support of Russell Peters who is great and it turns out we're mutual fans of each other but I and so so I think he would be supportive of me going on before him and being more I'm a weirdo from my point of view is I want to go on and score and have a good show to set him up sure. for what he's doing you know is I'm a weirdo but I'm also a professional weirdo and so in that sense the the, the material that I picked for opening up these shows is is heavier on the I'm married and this is my relationship with my wife and daughter and also here's a little bit of I'm a weirdo but then back to that.
0: Sure. And okay. so
1: so I feel like this I hope this kind of answered your question. So I feel like there's a little uh, continuum and the accordion sometimes is squished in all the way on I'm a weirdo and sometimes it's expanded out okay. and I I've got I've I also ha- I also have to go to the bank. You know, even weirdos have to go to the bank.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> So this is Jake. Such a pleasure to talk to him. You can find out all about Jake at his website, jakethis.com, and you can follow him on Twitter, at Jake This, and get involved and listen to his podcast as well. He's got lots and lots of material out there, and uh, I don't know when he's next coming to the UK. As you heard, he was supporting Russell Peters on tour when I managed to track him down to speak to him. I think we met at the the LA Podcast Festival probably in 2015, which... Felt so futuristic at the time and now seems like it's four years ago. Well, there we are. Um, more from Jake in just a moment. As I said, if you go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, you can catch up with some extra material from this episode, including Jake on uh, why he turned down uh, a very important, a key role on the sitcom Seinfeld. And uh, we're going to also talk about how to do well at a corporate gig. Jake's very, very experienced in in uh, at corporate Stand up, and so or surviving as a stand up, thriving within the uh, the corporate marketplace. So we're going to get some top info on that as well. All available to members of the Insiders Club. Now, a couple of bits and bobs. I will talk to you in a post-amble. Thank you to everyone that came to Leicester uh, to my crazy, I haven't written this show till this morning uh, experiment. I'll talk to you about that in the post-amble, but thank you everyone that came to the tour shows in Leicester and indeed in Maidenhead. Big shout out to everyone there that was wearing their Concom t-shirts in the audience. Uh, I always spot this. If there's enough light on you, I spot it. The bees t-shirt, the fuck'em t-shirt, is harder for me to spot than the... um, holly becker's brilliant horse design which sort of glistens in the darkness but uh i'm very my heart is very warmed to uh, see both of those go to comedianscomediancom slash tour for the rest of my tour dates the end of this week i'm in falmouth and then i've got lots of other exciting places coming up amongst the southwest and the midlands and then culminating in a, a quick run at the soho theater so if you would like to come and see me live please do so And next week, big announcement, I'm going to be releasing Like I Mean It, which is last year's tour show, and I'm going to do something um, experimental with it, as I like doing, now that I have... now that I have, not right now, now that I'm in the, the, the very privileged position of... Uh, having a small following amongst you and uh, amongst people in the wider world, I get to experiment with, you know, just try trying little things. Here's my idea for this one. You know, last year I gave away, compared to what? I gave away that tour show uh, to the first thousand people that downloaded it on the podcast feed. Well, this one, with Like I Mean It, I've had it pro-filmed by Turtle Canyon. Stuart Laws of Turtle Canyon directed it, and uh, he... It's, it's it's canyon right isn't it i've just i've just seen those words turtle canyon in my head for the first time ever and gone oh that's right isn't it it sounds weird it does sound weird but it is that um stew directed uh, and shot uh, james acaster's repertoire those four netflix specials that dropped at the same time and he's a very funny stand up comedian himself if you've ever seen uh, stew laws at the macfest or the edinburgh festival or Anywhere else as well. Uh, very, very funny person and fingers in many pies. Stu very kindly came along and uh, and shot and edited the show for me. It is all proper pro quality. And I'm going to be releasing two versions of it. The first is going to be made available on YouTube on the 28th of February for free. And uh, hopefully in cahoots with uh, another special uh, organisation, which I will get into as and when that that comes out. The other part of it is going to be released again on the 28th, for purchase. And that is going to be a 90-minute... Uh, 90 minute long director's cut which is not a director's cut it's a director's non-cut it's a completely uncut uh, it's got all the fuck ups in it it's got all me tripping over my words sweating profusely redoing them the sound went down for 10 minutes in the middle and i kind of coped with it in a funny way i tell the beekeepers joke uh, and it's got me doing my own warm-up and being my own floor manager as well it's really really funny and it really puts you right in the room so if you would like to purchase that you can do so for five pounds at my website as of the 28th of February. So, I will do a special micro episode of this podcast to remind everyone of that. And, but prepare yourselves for that. Half past 11 on the 28th of February. That's this coming Friday. Uh, I am going, or possibly Thursday. Is it five, six, seven, eight? It's Thursday. And uh, uh, and that's going to be going off. I'm also going to be announcing the second leg of the tour, which is uh, taking place in autumn this year. So if you want to come and see End Of and join in with the uh, happy laughing people in Maidenhead and Leicester, then please do so. That's all of that. Do check out Jake's stuff. Uh, He's oh, such fun to talk to and, uh, and a really, really funny man. Loads of stuff online uh, from his numerous televisual endeavours. That's it for now. I'll post-amble at you at the end regarding my recent experiment, and uh, uh, I will speak to you. No, I don't need to say speak to you soon because it's the middle blurb, so just talk to you in a second. Here's Jake. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without
1: blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods,
0: Well, this is it because I'm wondering about your. We talked a little bit about kind of ambition or re- sort of relative ambition. Mm-hmm. I wonder. I I feel like if if I was looking at kind of thirty years plus of of comedy, then I would fit. Certainly, in my in my mere thirteen years, I feel there have been years when I've thought I've really got to. I've got to. I've got to stay truer to this thing, and then there are years where I've thought I've got to be more commercial. Do you know what I mean? I need to be yeah. more relatable. And I think I'm just interested in, obviously we can look back at it. We talked about looking back at it from the, from the perspective of now, but I'm interested in whether along the journey or even in those early days or so 10 or 15 years in, you were thinking in order for the next big thing to happen, I need to tailor what I'm doing.
1: I, I've often thought, that if I could make that choice, I would be more successful. If I could say, "Look, I'm I'm going to make the choice to do what makes me more popular, I'm going to be more successful." Convent, by successful, I mean what what they think is successful, sure. not what I think is successful. Sure. What you know, from the outside, people judge your comedy career based on how famous you are and how much money you have, and then what you know accomplishments that signify that you know, you, do you play to, you We're doing this show at Wembley now. So I'm doing a show at Wembley. It's Russell Peters show, but I'm doing a show at Wembley. Sure. So, okay. It, from some point of view, he's successful because he's doing a show at Wembley and I'm not successful because I'm opening for him doing a show at, at Wembley. But from my point of view, this is me doing a show at Wembley. You know, I did three nights at the Greek theater in Los Angeles I was opening up for Barry Manilow, but I did. My wife was like, "I don't know if I like Barry Manilow." And I go, <laughs> "It's me. I'm I'm doing a show at the Greek Theater. You need to come and see me. You can watch Barry if you want. It's a great show, by the way. Um, but uh, you're, I, this, these are the things that I'm doing. So, so I had often thought, uh, what would my career be like if I if I had made that choice to to try and be more mainstream and be more popular?" And I just realized. That's not a choice that I could make. I said it to my manager, who's been my manager and now friend for twenty years, and she said, "You know, you give yourself a break. You couldn't have done that. If, <laughs> if if you had tried to do that, you would have fucked it up because you would have hated yourself, and you would hate it. You would have hated the show, and you would have either gotten yourself fired or you would have quit." And uh, and she's probably right. I mean, not that I am some kind of highfalutin artist and I have nothing against selling out. I would love to sell out if the price is right. I'm looking for opportunities to sell out, but uh, there's just some things that you enjoy doing and some things that you don't enjoy doing. And, and if I was giving career advice to, to anyone, I would say, look, go, go where they love you and go where you love to go and focus on what you think is funny. Try and be true to your sense of humor and, Everything comes, all of your success comes from your ability to connect to that live audience. The reason someone wants to give you your own TV show or put you in a movie is they come and see you on stage in front of an audience, whether it's 10 people or 10,000 people. They see you in front of that audience, and they see that audience's reaction to what you're doing. And so you're, you should always be focusing on being true to yourself and communicating that to the audience. That's that's to me, that's the choice that I'm trying to make. That's the clarity that I have anyway.
0: Just on a, on a tangential note, what's it like having a manager for 20 years? That kind of rele- That's one of those things that seems to me like I'm, I have been with my manager for three or four years, and I hope I'm with her for 20. But I just, that's one of those things that I kind of can't get my head around what the, the development of that relationship must be like
1: well it's wonderful and terrible you know it's wonderful because i feel like she is there for me she believes in me and she supports me and she tries uh to make you know the cliche make my dreams come true you know if i say look this is what i want to do next she tries to figure out like is there a way i want to make a comedy special okay what's what's a way that we can accomplish that um and and that, to me, in my world of how I make my choices, is more important than the way that when I jokingly say it's wonderful and terrible, that's the wonderful part. The terrible part is, you know what, there there's there's many more managers out in the world who've got higher profile clients who, if they saw me connect to an audience and and on a whim said, I want to be your manager, they might be able to take me in and stick me into some thing that one of their other clients was doing, you know, and all at once. Now I'm in a movie with that guy, sure. you know, and I have this other bigger success. But they may they might think that that's what they're going to do, take you on board and then get bored with you, and then you just sit on their their shelf and be like, I also have that guy. Or they may stick you in that thing, and it turns out that that's the one thing that that other client did that wasn't popular, and now you it didn't happen, and you're just stuck with this manager who thought, you know, they lit the fuse and the firecracker didn't pop. And now now you're just with someone who they don't believe in you. They don't care about your dream. They don't want the next thing to come true. So um, it's a bit of a, I mean, that's the trade-off. I, some people think oh, you should never become friends with your manager. You should, uh, you know, they're there to serve you. And if they're not blowing you up or making you bigger, getting the things that you want, screw them and get rid of them. And I'm much more from a look I need someone who believes in me cuz sometimes I don't believe in myself and I need someone who's going to be out there working hard making phone calls to try and get me what I need to survive which is you know live performance dates and some managers they they're like well if you're not a movie star call call me you, you know or don't call me because I'm not going to get I'm not I'm not going to focus on helping you make a living or helping you you say stay creatively satisfied my focus is on just making you your big star bigger you know
0: when you say you and i realize you just say this in passing but in the something we talk about a lot on the show is the realms of self-belief when you say like because i don't believe in myself sometimes how can you can you chart your self-belief over your career have there been times of greater or lesser self-belief or is it a is it a kind of day-to-day week to week? yeah
1: i think it's more of an accordion kind of sometimes it's squished up but sometimes it's blown out uh
0: and i, I don't think you're different from a lot of comics in that oh, respect i don't think i'm, don't think I'm different that. from
1: a lot of human beings i mean everybody has those days where you're just like god i thought i thought i really had this thing figured out And now today, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. You know, that's stand-up, right? I mean, the longer you've been doing it, the less kind of horrific... I don't really have terrible bomb sets anymore. I mean, right? You know what your greatest hits are, and you can always sort of revert to that. Um, But, but, you know, you have those times where, oh, geez, I thought that was going to... I really was sure that that joke was going to work or that I could start my set off this way in this situation. And, it, and it didn't work. And I, and I'm not positive why it didn't work. You know, those kind of lost moments where you kind of have to just reset and a little look I'll go on to, I'll figure it out. You know, I'll figure it out. But I think everybody has that. I mean, that's one of the, when you said you were a street performer for years, I, I, there's a guy in the States called Michael Collier, who started off on the streets. And has has become really successful, and he used to perform in Venice Beach, which is near where I live. And so I'll go down there sometimes. And not many guys doing just straight. He was doing stand up comedy, like just talking, not juggling or there are very few any those, other tricks. Yeah. yeah, there's very few. And to and to be able to grab a crowd, hold a crowd, and then get them to put some money in a hat after it's like, oh my god, that's the. That's the prize fighting of comedy right there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, prize fighting. It's about as healthy as prize fighting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested when you when you have those moments of thinking, oh, that didn't get the reaction I thought it was gonna get. Let's talk about some of the some of the tougher moments, either on stage or pre stage oh. or afterwards.
1: Everybody always wants to know like, oh, what's it like when you're bombing and what what about when people heckle you and
0: you oh, know, I, I wanna know what's it like what what are you like when you recover? I want I want the positive version of that. I want like I, we know it. I know it can. It, oh, it's the, awful, internal, the, yeah, the, the internal, yeah, the internal monologue that gets you back, either in the moment on stage or in the in the vehicle in the, on the way home.
1: Uh, do you remember the movie uh, Officer and a Gentleman?
0: I have not seen that movie. I'm aware it exists.
1: Yeah, it's a long time ago, right? But uh, Louis Gossett Jr. is a drill sergeant and. Uh, God, who is it? It's uh, Tom, Tom Cruise, Is it right? Richard Gere? Richard Gere? Is it Richard Gere or Tom? Anyway. I one of them. The handsome guy is trying to become a, a Navy fighter pilot. I'm pretty sure it's Tom Cruise, but I could. we could pause. But who has got time? You, uh, really? you keep talking. No, I'll no, no, keep no, forget talk. it. You can, yeah. <laughs> um, And Louis Gossett Jr., it's raining and he's making him do push-ups or sit-ups or something. And he wants him to quit. You want to quit? Why don't you quit? And the, and, and the guy who's trying to be a pilot is doing push-ups in the rain and just is so angry and depressed. But he's just like, this is all I've got. And he's crying. <laughs> and I remember at the time, so that movie was when? In the 80s, late 80s, 90s maybe? And at the time I was, I started in San Francisco. I went there because that's where Robin Williams started. And and Robin Williams would still come back and you know, that was the thing. If you were around San Francisco, he would be there and you could meet him and talk to him and then see him go on stage and improvise with other stand-ups in little tiny hundred hundred and fifty seat clubs. And he was on stage doing an improv one time and and it was another comic and the premise was it it wasn't they were trying they weren't trying to get into the Air Force. They were comedians and they were trying to do comedy and the other guy was trying to get him to quit doing comedy and and robin williams was doing the sit-ups and crying and 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 screaming like i can't quit doing it. this is all i've got. and i it just made me think of that when you were asking that question. so i i kind of feel like at this point the amount of real job opportunities that i have is zero. i mean there's not a there's not a job that i can get unless it's the kind of job that you get when you've just kind of come out of some kind of blackout alcoholic drinking life of 30 years, you know, you're just like, I just got to wash dishes and stay at the halfway house. I could get that kind of job. So, so there is a little bit of have to, I have to find a way to get back. And, but, it, but, but, but the disappointments that you suffer now. All right. You know, I mean, all depression kind of feels permanent and severe. But if you just kind of relax, you have a good cry, you, you know, get a good sleep. You, you wake up the next day, you're all right. Then you start getting excited about the next set you're going to do, and like famous last words. But, but if you're a comedian, you you know that like oh, I'm I, I'm pretty sure I knew where I blew it. I I know what I'm going to do the next time. This this time. Instead of saying, instead of, I'm going to fake this way and then go that way. You know, you're just positive that you've got it f- figured out. Or 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 at least you're you're positive that you've got an idea that you want to try the next time that you think it might work. It's, it's, that's a thing that I say to comics a lot of times when they're telling me, so oh, I've been doing this joke. Not that I'm some kind of joke doctor, but um, oh, I've been doing this joke and I can't can't get it to work or, or I'll see them say something. And I'll say that it's really funny. And they're going, yeah, it's, I like it too, but I, but it doesn't, you know, as a comic, you're always liking the joke that that's weird. Uh, I am.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And,
1: uh, and they'll be like, yeah, I like that joke too, but I can't get it to work. And the thing I always say is the reason a joke doesn't work a lot of times is not because the audience doesn't get it. Cause it's a bad joke. The joke doesn't work because you know something that they don't know. There's some part of the setup that you're taking for granted that they're not aware of. So yes. so it's not the punchline that's the problem. It's not the joke that they don't get. It's that they don't have enough of the setup to realize that that's... All jokes are 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 tricks. They're, like, unexpected. Like, I didn't think he was going to say that. And so something has to happen in the setup to help them realize what you think the joke is like what what do you want them to think you were going to say and then then you're going to say the other thing not to oversimplify or take the magic away from all the people who are listening to this thinking no to just, no, no people one spontaneously to this. <laughs> funny <laughs> no
0: one's but, listening to this thinking there's any magic left <laughs> yeah so so
1: so i think if you're struggling if you're a comic and you're trying to write a joke and it's not going over but you think the idea is really funny or clever the problem <clears throat> the problem Usually, in my experience, is not that that you need to quit the joke. It's not going to work. This is a bad idea. The problem is, you know something that the audience doesn't know, and you need to figure out what that is, and then how to put it in there without making it obvious. I mean, people. Some some people's favorite uh, jokes in the or, or I think from doing stand up all these years, the 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 jokes that people really like the most are the jokes where you said the punchline. A half a second before they thought of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So that's what you're. You're trying to give them all the ingredients to write the jokes, but then you go, "Ha! I got there first
0: <laughs> That's interesting. I love. I. I love those jokes where I've uh, one or two of these in my set at the moment where the audience, like you, give them all the components, and the clever kids get it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and there's a laugh, and then there's another laugh where there's like the other one.
1: You know, yeah, like well, I else ha-
0: catches up. I I think that the flexibility of when we're all on the same page it constantly fascinates me.
1: Well, or you know, you it's it's like laying down cards of a good poker hand, and oh, some people. Oh,
0: that's a nice analogy. Yeah, <laughs> you know,
1: so some people can realize, oh, he, that's going to be a full house, and other people don't quite get it So you put the next card down. And I I had a joke in my act uh, way back to, in the Ice Core sample about moving to California. And uh, having this leather jacket, and how it was weird to be in California because, you know, this is vegetarian's and so many. So I'm walking down the street in my suede jacket, and someone comes up to, this woman comes up to me and says, uh, Excuse me, sir, did you know that a cow was murdered for that jacket? And I would look at her and say, You know, I didn't know there were any witnesses. <laughs> now I'm going to have to kill you, too. <laughs> and I could always tell. How many smart ones there were in the crowd. Sometimes people would laugh when I said I didn't know there were any witnesses. Yeah. Sometimes everybody would laugh. Sure. Sometimes nobody would laugh. But then when I would say, now I'm going to have to kill you too, then they would. Then the penny drops and they get it. And so, so that's an example of what I'm talking about, about the ingredients in the joke. It's like the joke is I'm the guy who killed the cow. Yes. But you don't get it. Until you get it,
0: yeah. And when you get it, like because there's such an element of danger and kind of like, not only did you kill the cow, you'll kill anyone to get away. (laughs) now I'm I'm killing you.
1: You're a witness. You're going to dob me in for killing this cow, and I've got to keep that from happening. I don't want to go to jail. As if you're going to go to jail for killing a cow. So
0: much ludicrous detail is contained. Like you turn the you turn the jeopardy up. Like just immediately all the way. Yeah, right.
1: So you're flipping the you're flipping the card over. So just because you don't get a laugh on, now I'm going to kill you too doesn't mean the jokes a failure you need to play that other card and see if they go for that and then sometimes if they don't go for that then then try another more you know just keep i mean it doesn't always work but but i find that that if if they don't get the joke at first sometimes you just keep explaining it they can finally like oh i get the kind of crazy world you're living in where that's what you thought was going on you know i but uh, who knows that's me
0: do you do you have favorite kind of uh techniques or things you spot yourself doing? For a while I, I like a few of my shows end end with a kind of an unreliable narrator reveal. Like I've given hmm. them some, some information that then at the end turns out not only is that false, but that now casts a different light on a lot of things all the, the other things yeah mm. like I really like stuff like I, I I'm internally I can't smugly wait to
1: congratulating myself all. I can't wait to try that unrelatable <laughs> unreliable narrator things too. but is, um,
0: but is there uh is, is there an equivalent do you do you think of a thing that you that kind of makes you smile internally a particular kind of mechanism of of your joke telling
1: I probably should I you know that's the thing people always want you to do if you're pitching yourself for oh, Jake Jake Johansson should have his own TV show. Well, what, what based on his comedy? Well, what is comedy like? And I could never come up with that answer of like, this is what I'm doing. This is what my comedy is like. And and so I I seldom have thought about my comedy in terms of like, what's what's the template for this joke and what's the template for that joke? And and maybe I should have more. I feel like that's another one of those things of like. You might be more successful if you can get the elevator pitch down of your act. Like, what do you do? Like, oh, you got to go see Stu because uh, why? What's funny about him? Oh, but he, this is what he does. You know, boom, 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 sure. little sure. elevator pitch. That, it's good to have that. I've never had that, but I think maybe one of my – go my, my, in the I'm a weirdo category, um, I would say it's, para, it's paranoia, conspiracy theory paranoia stuff that I find the most – It's funny. I like to go down that rabbit hole, just as a joke. I mean, I, I I think it's exciting to think that aliens live and work among us, and that there's some secret organization of, uh, you know, Illuminati, Illuminati lizard people that are controlling the world. I don't, I don't really necessarily believe that that's happening, but it could, could, could be happening. And so, I, I want to, I want to kind of spin out on that like always take it back to to that it's that like how do we know that the robots aren't behind this how do we know that the that the artificial intelligence isn't already in charge how do we know that this isn't the matrix we're recording this inside of a recording of the thing of this
0: there's a i can't i can never remember the um the logical steps but i'm sure you've read online somewhere there's someone explains why in all probability we are living in the matrix and this it's like a, it's a yeah. thought experiment whereby you go well because that because that because that then it would be insane for us not to be living in the matrix <laughs> Yeah, the simulation theory all the way down
1: <laughs> no I, I do get that and i and i love the idea of that that we're the we're inside of an envelope that's inside of an envelope that's inside of how many envelopes Is this my dream or is this your dream? You know, and I think we all hope the answer is it's my dream, not my dream, but your personal whoever the, the I is inside of you. You think that the world is all this is your dream. That would be
0: such. Imagine what a humble person you'd be if you're like, well, I really hope it's Jake's dream. (laughs) I really hope I'm a peripheral character.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, I'm fucking really having one over on you, Stu, because uh, my life is so great. I don't think you're, in fact, it's so great. I don't even think you're aware of most of the shit that I've done in your dream. (laughs) If this is your dream, um, I'm I'm loving it. Yeah, yeah. The point, I think what I was
0: getting at before with um, with regard to like a favourite thing is not necessarily, a, I mean, that's a really good answer, but I, I don't think I meant so much a sort of a subject area as a sort of stylistic thing. Like I noticed one of the things, I, the example is from a long time ago, it's from, um, uh, from this will take about an hour. When you're talking about the types of problem with the phone, it's misunderstanding to, uh, uh, to a, a very high extent some information. You're really good. I think throughout your stuff, you're really good at misunderstanding things in a surprising way. When the lady's saying to you, and I've realized this is years ago, uh-huh. from, from your perspective, the lady's saying to you, what kind of problem is it with the phone? What
1: pro- kind of problem are you having with your phone? And I say, yeah, well, it's, uh, I pick it up and no sound comes out. Yeah, it still I, has mass.
0: It still has mass. It still has the ability a to retain like, color. what's wrong with your
1: phone? It's weightless. Yeah. My phone is weightless and <clears throat> it's it's, uh, it's hard to describe. It's not f- fuzzy. Visually I can see it, but when I go to when I go to touch it, my fingers sink into it. They seem to sink into it like it's it looks like my fingers are going inside of the phone before they touch something solid. It's just I don't know if... is anyone else had this problem with the phone? Yeah, I, I didn't think of that as a misunderstanding thing, but I guess you are... I, I thought it was, uh, like, uh, surreal sarcasm.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and later in the routine, she's talking about, like... um oh, we'll send a guy out. And the response is, your response is, well, they'd, they'd have to send a guy out. I mean, I don't think there's a guy stationed at my house like that. You know? Yeah, so that's, again, that's so, Exactly, that's, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I've got to it. That's exactly
1: as what as if somebody's going to come out of the closet and like, hey, I'm here. Like, mm-hmm. wh- have you been there the whole time? Yes, yes. Yeah. So that, yeah, Well, that's answered, my, that's answered my question, I think. I'm just really interested.
0: I think that's a really good way to look at how someone perceives their own stuff is like what like the pleasure that you get as a as a creative person yeah well creating a particular
1: type of thing i am gonna write down do you have a pen yeah i need to write down surreal sarcasm (laughs) there's no way i'm gonna listen to this (laughs) (laughs) uh it's funny because you don't spend that much time i don't spend that much time thinking about now what is it that i'm doing you know what's behind i always think it's interesting when you go to museums, which I do like to go to art museums and see art. We're artists, right? We're, we're artists, what we're doing. People don't... I mean, where do we get the balls to call it art? But we're making up creative things and people are coming and enjoying I think them, the
0: very right? first thing you said, we're, we're artists, right? Yeah, that's yeah. what we are. We're artists, comma, right? Question right? mark? That's yeah. what we are.
1: <laughs> well, that's comedy always falls into that category. But it, but it's funny, you know, you in San Francisco, they would do the, the theater, the giant... 2,000 seat theater like, like all these great theaters in London had a bene- would have a benefit every year to benefit the actual theater where they would get comedians to donate their time and put on a show and it was one of the most popular things that the theater subscribers attended out of the year was this stand-up comedy show and you're on stage in there saying, look, you jerks, you think that we're just the dirty, scum, slum artists but you love it you love it. Now, why do I have to come and do a benefit for this 2,000-seat theater? There's a 200-seat comedy club that we're struggling to keep full for you know for our six shows during the week. You people love it. Why don't you go over there and see that show? And it's because they somehow have separated it from being art. Yes, it's their- only
0: allowed to be art if it's a gala fundraising dinner. Then yeah. they can lower themselves to yeah. come and see a thing they actually want to see.
1: Yeah, so one of the things I like to do is to go to an art museum, and it... It's you can get it's it's nice to read the plaques and things on the wall where they're describing the art and what the artist was doing. But the older I get, the more I read some of that and then I have to check out. And it's just like, look, this is just some dumbass who's got a college degree. They're no smarter than me. And it's what they think that Picasso was doing. Picasso didn't tell them this shit about this?
0: Yeah, yeah at no point. He didn't tell anyone. Picasso information was, was just walking
1: around like, I'm going to get a glass of wine and fuck a lady and then I'm going to buy a plastic monkey and I'm going to glue it to this <laughs> truck. That's what Picasso was thinking. He wasn't thinking about, I'm making a commentary about sure. men and machines. I mean, maybe he was. Obviously, that was part of his subtext. And so part of my subtext when I'm writing these jokes is I, I like this sci-fi, paranoid, conspiracy theory um i think that surreal sarcasm is funny but i'm not like okay i want to tell a story about taking the tube to to go see my friend and i'm going to work this i'm going to work those elements in you know you you're not as aware of what you're doing as all of that of you're course. you're just trying to you're you're doing what you're doing you're telling your story you're making your art um with the tools that you've got available and the brushes that you like you know
0: and what is that what does that actual work look like for you now? Is it always on stage? Is it are you sitting down and writing or typing? This is the problem.
1: And any comedian who has ever had a relationship with another person knows that it doesn't look like you're working a lot of times when you're working. It looks like you're just sitting there or it looks like you're watching cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or it looks like you're riding your bike to the comedy store, or you look or it looks like you're hanging out with your friends drinking a drinking a beer or having coffee and just laughing that that's what it looks like. I I feel like, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to stir your brain pot as much as you can. And then when something bubbles up, you know, when you say surreal sarcasm, you got to write it down, you got to catch it. It's a butterfly. It's going to fly away. You may never see it again. And so I, I think that my, for my creative process is, I'm trying to be more disciplined, but you always think you, you always think these butterflies are mine. you know, I said this funny thing. I'm going to remember it. That that was funny. I'm a guy. I'll remember it. I'll come later tonight when I get home, I'll look at all the butterflies that are in this cage that I have. And I'll remember that one that I thought of today and it'll be fine, but you, you can't do it that way. You got to write it down on a little piece of paper, stuff it in your pocket. And then like some crazy, um, schizophrenic nut job you got to do a detective thing on your own life you got to take out the pieces of paper and you find things that are written down like um this will be fun uh we can go into my phone right
0: great great. i love doing this (laughs) yeah
1: so you write down little things and then you lay and you think that you've written down enough that you're going to be able to um I think you're going to be able to, uh, I'm just trying here. this would be the, this is a good one. So you write things down and then, then you, so here what I've written down, simulation matrix, which is what we were talking about earlier. Um, I I was able to get you to bring it up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Mirror neurons, which that kind of, so you just parasite host, which is preferable?
0: Parasite, go on. Talk talk to me about more about what, the, what that idea is. Parasite well, I hurts. did
1: talk about this a bit on my pod. You can listen to my podcast. It's the Jake This uh, podcast. Jake This of Jake Johansson, and some of them are me talking to other people. And I've decided that I don't really care if it's a show that people want to. You know, I, I don't. It doesn't have a clear concept, but it's a lot of me. <laughs> And some of them are just me talking. So I did talk about this. You know, parasite or host, when I first say that, of course, you think you want to, you're the host, right? These fucking parasites are on you all yeah. the time. So you want to be the host. You you immediately associate yourself. At least I think you do. I think one does. When I say the parasite or the host, we all think of ourselves as we're the host, right? We're the big organism that uh, that. And it's and it's great to be that. But is it great to be the host fucking parasites? They're just sucking off you and living off you. Wouldn't it be great to be a parasite? Yeah. Someone else is doing all the work and you just you're just sucking it up and, and enjoying life. I, I, I think, you know, parasite, if you're a if you're a benevolent parasite, you know, if you're a, if you have some symbiotic relationship, um, maybe it's nicer to be the parasite than the host I mean the host it seems like the host winds up dead eventually the parasites just suck you dry but if you're the parasite you know you get to move on to another host fucking host they're a dime a dozen am I right ladies (laughs) Um, I didn't mean that for me that was a comedy that's a thing that comedians say to the audience I didn't mean that all ladies are parasites (laughs) fuck you gotta be so careful nowadays
0: (laughs) so what will you will you take that idea onto the stage and talk about it in like a new material just based
1: on this conversation right now i don't think it's ready
0: (laughs) as as you were telling me that i felt like i wanted to write down on a board and hold up i'm listening i'm in listening mode as an interviewer now (laughs) i'm not riffing i'm sorry
1: (laughs) fuck Stu's not into it he's not buying it um yeah. I, I yeah, I think I will talk about it at some point. It's hard for me because the more I can work it out before I go on stage, the more productive the going on stage part of it is. Yes. But I I I often kind of feel like I need that I need a little bit of audience feedback early on to kind of spur me to go back to the notebook to flesh it out a little bit and then come out again. But it's always it's always that back and forth there's only so much you can do i mean if you're a musician you can practice your instrument in your closet at home but if you're a comedian you could make as many plans as you want but until you actually say that stuff to an audience you don't really i mean you have a you have a better idea based on the amount of experience you have going on stage whether or not it's going to work but you really don't know how it's going to go until you start it to the crowd. I
0: find with a new bit, if I've got a new kind of concept, I, I, I need to know that the end has got a funny idea in it, which may or may not be funny, but I definitely know what the end is. And then I need a little bit of a funny thing in the introduction. To and so I'm like, you're on. You're, it's almost like I'm saying to the audience, you, you're on board with this now, right, guys? That was a bit funny. Now I'm going to try and improvise my way around a bit, buoyed up with the confidence of knowing it goes somewhere.
1: Yeah, yeah. And how did
0: that work? You know? Okay,
1: yeah. So. So that's, I'm the same. I'm the same. I like to have a, a bit more than that. I like to have, I like it to be the, the the ideas that I'm going to tell a little story that involves that as whatever that note that I've just taken. I'm going to tell a little story that involves that note. I know how the story starts and I know what I think the laugh is at the end. And then I like to have two other ones in the middle. So four all together and then, I start talking at the beginning and I know that I'm heading towards the end and I try and take my time and fuck around as much as possible. And then when I feel like the audience has had it and they're, 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 they're going to bail. I, then I, then I do the first thing that I'm pretty sure is going to be a joke and hopefully it is. And if it is, then I can fuck around a little while before I do the next one. And if the first thing that I do is not as it's going to it's going to get some reaction, but maybe it doesn't, but if it doesn't get a good enough reaction, I go right to the second one. And if that works, then I can screw around a little bit. And if that doesn't work, then, then I kind of wrap it up and get to the end and then go back to the drawing board. But so I've got, I've got, I've got a couple of beats and then I'm trying to just flesh out in between them. And I, and, and, and that's how I, you know, if we're talking about to go to process, which I think is a thing that you like to do. Right. Um, in my process, I, pu- I was trying to do the new stuff first. If I'm doing an hour-long show, an American stand-up is a little different, I think, than than over here where you're presenting your show, like a festival show, where this is my new hour for this year. Mm-hmm. In America, the way that I've I've been considered, fairly prolific, but I would say that I'd turn over, you know, 25 to 50% of the hour a year and just... Gradual, like mm-hmm. things get replaced, like the cells yeah, of your body much, get replaced. Yeah, it's
0: a much smarter way of doing
1: it. Yeah. Well, it's smarter, but it depends on the fact that there's always enough people in the audience that didn't see you the last time. Sure. Whereas if, if everybody in the audience saw you the last time, you can't do that. So my approach then is to put the new stuff at the beginning. Come out, say hello. Maybe I've got one little thing that I know is a little bit of a laugh at the beginning. But enough people are there that know who I am. And then I can do the new stuff at the beginning. And so even if the response is lower, then sometimes you just do one new bit at the beginning. So you're on for five minutes and doing this thing and fleshing it out. It's kind of funny. And then then you dive into your material that you know works. And maybe there's some new stuff sprinkled into there. But it's easier to do the new stuff at the beginning and people are getting to know you and then then it feels to them like oh he started off kind of slow and then he it was like a train freight train he got sure, built up momentum sure. and yeah. he got going as opposed to you're in the middle of the show everything's going great and then you just <clears throat>
0: you let me look at my notes <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. when
1: they don't see you do that hopefully sure, you're not doing sure, that sure. but but you're like now I'm going to take it I mean, now we're going off road we're going four wheeling now in the middle of the show <clears throat> and sometimes that's hard because the the pacing of the laughs changes so much that you're not really giving that material a chance you're, you're putting it in a, in, a, in, a, in a context where the audience is naturally going to think, well, well, this is not as good as the other stuff. And, of course, the reason, the reason is it's not, as, it's not as developed as the other stuff, whereas if you put it at the beginning, it's still the reason is it's not as developed as the other stuff, but their perception in the audience is he's just getting started.
0: Yes, sure, sure. And have there, has the learning plateaued ever for you? Has like the rate of learning... Do you still learn as much now as in? Like I feel like I learned a lot in the first few years, and then I probably kind of just kept going for a bit, and then I really started to think about something. Do you know what I mean? Like that kind of graph over time of how much your how much I, additional skill you're
1: acquiring. I, I feel like it's not a steady ramp; it's a plateau and a go up, and then sometimes, you know, it, I've gone through a couple of periods in my life. There was a I I think at the end of that this will take about an hour I had got, had a heartbreak and then the end of the show is about is about this having my heartbroken thing and that kind of that kind of derailed a little bit of my progress on stage for a while it was just like look I'm so dealing with this personal thing mm-hmm. that the, that when I was on stage I was really just I was really just doing the show that I had and slowly adding to it so I've had those periods in my life but I feel like now is a good creative time Yeah, I mean, you're always trying to figure out some new thing to do. I I feel like one of the... One great thing that happened to me was in the... Probably 17 years ago, or 17 years ago, maybe 18, I did the Kilkenny Comedy Festival for the first time. And I had had other experiences internationally, but just in Canada at the Just for Laughs, or I came over here and did one, you know, one or two little shows in london where it was just to come over do a tv show and fly back
0: mm-hmm.
1: but i did that kilkenny just for last festival and i made friends with a lot of international comics that was the most fun thing to me about doing it was getting to see these other comics and what they do that you've never seen really good comics that you never saw before because they're someplace else and and the different ways that they do their acts and and how it all works and i got to come back a couple years later and and made friends and then i came back just three years ago to, or maybe it was four now to do this reunion at the Kilkenny festival and got to see everybody else now after they'd gone on with their careers, you know, people like, uh, Ed Byrne and Dara Breen and Adam Hills. And, and, and then this last time I was having a beer with Adam Hills in Kilkenny and, uh, you know, and, and to me, he's just a guy I met at the comedy festival. I didn't really realize how huge and successful sure. he is, you know, because um, that wasn't. I mean, he's just he's just a great comedian and a really nice guy, and we're talking about how you know in my career I really love doing stand up and you know all that other TV show stuff is uh, is great, but then you see a guy like Jerry Seinfeld who's had that success who's still going on stage doing live stand up, and I had always kind of pitched it as if this is what I like doing. But then when you see a guy like, it really validates, this is the fun thing. I'm doing the fun thing. I'm doing the fun thing. He did another thing, but I'm doing the fun thing. And now the evidence is, he's going back to doing the thing that I've been doing all this yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I was having that conversation with Adam and then I'd really kind of talked to Rich Hall and busted my ass to to figure out a way to come to London. And my manager, who loves me and cares about me, got me a gig at the Soho Theater a couple years ago and I came over and did that and I did some other gigs on the side and I ran into Adam and, cause, cause I said, Hey, I'm coming to London. I'd love to see you over there. I've never, I've only seen him in Kilkenny," And he came out and we had some, he said, you know, I, you talk about doing comedy. I might be able to help you do this Melbourne comedy festival thing. And I said, uh, well, that'd be great. And he says, yeah, I think I can produce the show. And I said, well, really, that, that'd be awfully nice of you. And in America, produce doesn 't mean the same you know, produce can mean <laughs> sure i 'm going to make a phone call and then you can pay the money and do it, yeah, yeah, um, but he he took the risk and and got me down to Melbourne. I did the comedy festival in two thousand and sixteen and i would I would be back there this year, but i 'm doing this russell peters tour um, and so I feel like where i 'm at now that i 'm really loving is this coming outside the United States at the tender age of how old I am, which you can look up on the Internet. Do you think I do have to do everything? Um, I'm now I'm now trying to do these international gigs. And it's and it's humbling in a sense. I mean, it's way easier for me to go and tour the States. And I walk on stage and people know who I am and I can do my is he crazy or not. And it's and it's super fun and it's rewarding. And I feel like it's creatively satisfying. And in some ways, it's more satisfying than struggling in Melbourne. Not really struggling, but you're doing a show for people who've never heard of you before. And you've yeah. got to really kind of figure out how to reach them. And it was such a positive experience to do the shows and to have the kind of varied audience response in the show and then afterwards to feel how many people want to come up and say, oh, thanks for coming. We really enjoyed that. You know, they they like the show, but they're not always laughing. You're warming up for yourself in those sure, sure, things. Sure. So, so to me... The idea that I'm growing, doing the same thing that I'm always doing and having new experiences, doing the same thing that I was, I've always done is really exciting at, the, at this point in my career. I mean, so that's what I'm that's what I'm loving right now is trying to really figure out how do you go on and and re-communicate who you are to people who don't know who you are, who don't haven't seen that whole ice core of your career and you 've got to sum all of that up and be true to yourself and not be too much of a weirdo that they 're just like, "Fuck i don 't even know what 's going on right now, but still but still do it again to reinvent yourself right first, it was at the Melbourne Comedy Festival and in Kilkenny at these comedy festivals, but now it 's opening up for Russell Peters on these international shows where we 're going to go to Oslo and Croatia and you know Amsterdam, and we 've already been to Jakarta and Singapore. And it's it's really it's really fun for me, and so I do feel excited and like there's a there's a growth thing going on, and I, I think if you're a comic and you're starting to feel frustrated with what's going on, or if you feel like anytime time you feel like oh fuck these people, and you got to go on stage and do the oh slap, like like Bill Hicks said, slap on a smile and do it all again. That's not re- I, it's funny. I, I love Bill. But that's not a way that you should feel when you're about to do your comedy show. You should feel like, oh boy, here 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 it comes. You know, I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna tell these people what I want to tell them, and we're all gonna have a great time. That's how you wanna feel. And so I feel like I'm at a good place for that right now, and I'm really I'm enjoying it. <laughs>
0: So that was Jake Johansson. Such a pleasure to speak to Jake. Do check him out, jakethis.com, at jakethis on Twitter and presumably other social media forms as well. Uh, And his podcast is called Jake This, so look out for that. Um. Th- uh. The, what else was I going to tell you the Insiders Club stuff yes Jake on how to survive a corporate how to thrive at a corporate comedy gig and also that big decision about Seinfeld uh, all available at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders and uh, go to comedianscomedian.com slash tour for all the tour information my uh, right okay we'll get we'll get post ambling that's all for now I'm going to talk to you about resilience and I'm going to talk to you about my little Lester experiment after this noise but for now that concludes the podcast <laughs> Okay, so post ambling and I will admit now that I'm talking to the the inner circle of post-ambulists. Um, I'm actually parked next to a recycling bin in the shade. It's the second day of spring. God springs here at last. Thank Christ. Um, I'm I'm parked, and I, I might get booted out at some point. I'm sort of on someone else's. I'm in an industrial estate. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty industrial. So. Um, here are the things that happened. Thank you so much to those of you who got in touch about my resilience presentation. Oh God, I'm going to have to whip that bit off the end of the Jeff Innocent episode. Brackets, how good was Jeff, right? Right? Um, because uh, they are no longer available. They The freebies got snapped up. Um, and I will get beavering away on that uh, and get it all tuned up and then probably tell you about it again in a new form once it exists. But thank you to everyone that's been in touch. Sorry I can't come and do all of them. Um, and then Lester... What a stressful day that was. I had to remind myself of the new show. I had to kind of get... Sorry, the tour show, end of. I had to kind of get it back in the bone. Like, I really enjoyed doing it in Maidenhead on the Friday night. And then I knew on in the morning, on the Saturday at the Leicester Comedy Festival, I was like, I, I have to write a new hour from scratch right now. And even when that's done, then I've got to do a bit more pacing around, listening to my headphones and, and trying to uh, uh, get the get the show end of back in my bones, because it's so, when you're in Edinburgh and you're just banging it out every day, you become you have so much fluidity and so much fluency with it, and the show in Maidenhead, I was like, here's the show, and it was the show, and then afterwards I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if I was just a little bit more flexible throughout it? So I had that hanging over me when I drove to Leicester at nine o'clock in the morning on Saturday, knowing that at 3.45pm I was going to present... Uh, I mean, the title of the show was "This Show Doesn't Have a Title." It's not even the word "untitled." It just literally has no title. And the blurb was something like, "I think what did I write?" In my continuing quest to pare back creative efficiency to the very marrow, uh, I hereby guarantee that I will not have done any work on this show until the morning of the performance. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah, big, (laughs) big words, Goldsmith. Here's what I was trying to achieve. I really, what it is about creative efficiency, and it's also. And what does that mean? What it really means is I live every year of my life with the monkey of I've got to write a new show on my back. So this was an experiment designed to discover whether I could not write anything for months so I could get on with other stuff, pod-related stuff, life-related stuff, having a baby-related stuff, without writing. And this flies in the face of so many people's advice. Gary Gulman, you know, write every day. Jerry Seinfeld into that, write every every day, every day, every day um i just felt creatively burnt out i needed some time off and um and i should say these americans who say right every day they're not turning over a fresh hour that's festival ready every year not all of them some of them um so i felt burnt out and i was like right i need i need a break i need to just let my brain unclench and see what comes in and um and i think it worked There was a good, there's some good stuff in there. I mean, it's very, it's also, I suppose I have to say, it's, okay, so I turned up, I did the show. People came, there were 40 odd people there. Thank you to everyone that, that came to that. And then I had to just wing it. I had scribbled for like four and a quarter hours, just like this idea, this idea, this idea, this idea. Let's then write them out. Let's then trim them down and just put them until they're just two words on a bunch of index cards, two words per card. Any more than that, I end up flying with my face buried in the dashboard. So, you know, in the cockpit, you are in the cockpit, the dashboard of the cockpit. Is it still called a dashboard? My point is, you can't be reading jokes out. You have to look at the card, right, that's the thing. Now try and convince them of it. And it was a really exciting experience. I think halfway through it, I thought to myself, even if this goes brilliantly well, I'm never doing it again because that morning was very supercharged and tense and stressful, but uh, some good gear came out of it, and it has made me feel like I could do that again. I could just kind of, rather than writing, 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 I could simply be open to the universe, open to the universe, open to the universe, and then do all the writing. And it certainly made me feel that were I doing uh, a fresh hour at Edinburgh this year, I'd be panicking from now, but it wouldn't be impossible. I could start in February and write from then. But I'm not doing a new hour in Edinburgh this year. But I think I am doing a work in progress every day at a venue that is pretty much decided but not publicly released yet. So I'll keep that to myself. You'll be the first to know, I assure you. Um, so I think I'm going to go up there and, and try and do something similar every day. If I It was so exhilarating. If I can go to Edinburgh and every afternoon do an hour that I, I spent two hours that morning writing towards and then blatting it out there. Or even, I haven't quite decided, hey, other comics who've done this, or people who've done this in different walks of life, or people who haven't, just give me an opinion. What do you think would be more fertile? Should I be trying to write every day and try new stuff every day? Or should I be trying to walk on with nothing every day, Tommy Tiernan style, and just taking what Alfie Brown recently referred to as a big creative dump every day and clawing my way out of it? What What is the better way to activate creativity given that i have the opportunity now for the experiment for this experiment what is going to come up with the most honest stuff writing and then trying it or having no writing and trying to just speak truth truth i don't mean truth i don't mean big geopolitical truth but like just the whole point of it it's not to fuck about the point of it is to to be as honest as possible. And I think in the moment, it reminds me of a clown exercise I did years ago with my brilliant clown, Marcelo Magni, teaching. And um, he, it it was about trying to find your first instinct and your first instinct being the most honest instinct. And there are moments I feel engaged with that on stage. So I suppose ultimately, is it a writing exercise? Is it a sort of performing, clowning, kind of authenticity exercise? And I suppose it's the second one. But, um, yeah, we'll have to see. I think it's going to be really good fun. I think it's going to be really frightening fun. <laughs> um, that'll probably do for now. There's other things happening in my life. The baby still has reflux. Bless the baby. Um, she's Future Girl is so sweet and good-natured. And, oh, my God, when the bootross walks into the room, her eyes light up. She loves him. You can just say his name to her. Like, do you know who's going to be up in a minute? The Boutros, brackets were only Um, and her little face, it just shines. It's so beautiful. And he's so sweet and he's so excited about the idea of, like, do you think that one day I will read a book and she will listen to the book and she will read a book as well? And you're like, yeah, I think she will, mate. So that's glorious. That's really lovely. And... Um, I am going to go back to them now. There is some allotted parenting time uh, after the admin blast I've been doing, which concluded with this um, industrial estate-based recording sesh. You could, I, I feel like the acoustics... I'm in my van, and it's a very 80s van. It's a Mazda Bongo. It used to belong to Rob Rouse. And as a result, it's called Shaniqua in, uh, in tribute to the duck that he once owned. If you ever saw him do the material on Shaniqua, first class. Um, I think the acoustics are quite good because it's quite an 80s van, so there's a lot of uh, carpet up the walls. <laughs> <laughs> OK, that'll do for now. Um, thanks once again to Jake. Thanks for listening. I, I've, I don't bang on so often about reviewing the show, but we are over a thousand star reviews on iTunes now, which is sexy and cool and uh, probably helps in some way. So um, particularly if you listen to the show via iTunes in another country. I think iTunes is the country-specific one, most other pod ratings podcatcher ratings seem to be globalized but if you're listening via itunes in a country other than the uk please uh, leave me a review uh, an honest review uh, but sure if you don't like the show don't feel under pressure to, to leave a review um but uh, if you fancy leaving us a, a lovely five-star review then uh, then please do so uh, and th- that will really help me become more visible in wherever you are listening so that's it for now Um, look forward to this Thursday the 28th uh, we're releasing the tour uh, the second half of the tour and uh, releasing like I mean it on super top notch video on cheapo mode where you watch the 55 minute spanking clean version and hardcore awesome fan mode where you pay £5 and get the whole lot so there we go that's that I'll speak to you soon bye for now